if you are able, please rise as we now read God's Word, as we continue through the Gospel of Mark, and we read chapter 7, and we read from verses 24 to the end of the chapter. And from there he arose and went away to the region of Tyre and Sidon, and he entered a house and did not want anyone to know, yet he could not be hidden. But immediately a woman whose little daughter had an unclean spirit heard of him, and came and fell down at his feet. Now the woman was a Gentile, a Syrophoenician by birth, and she begged him to cast the demon out of her daughter. And he said to her, Let the children be fed first. For it is not right to take the children's bread and throw it to the dogs. But she answered him, Yes, Lord, yet even the dogs under the table will eat the children's crumbs. And he said to her, For this statement you may go your way. The demon has left your daughter. And she went home, and found the child lying in bed, and the demon gone. Then he returned from the region of Tyre and went through Sidon to the Sea of Galilee in the region of the Decapolis. And they brought to him a man who was deaf and had a speech impediment. And they begged him to lay his hand on him. And taking him aside from the crowd privately, he put his fingers into his ears, and after spitting, touched his tongue. And looking up to heaven, he sighed and he said to him, Epaphtha, that is, be opened. And his ears were opened. His tongue was released, and he spoke plainly, and Jesus charged them to tell no one. But the more he charged them, the more zealously they proclaimed it, and they were astonished beyond measure, saying, He has done all things well. He even makes the deaf hear and the mute speak. The reading of God's word. Let's pray. Dear Jesus, the grass will wither and the flower will fade, but you have said that your word will stand firm and true forever. I ask and I pray that you make those words reality, that you hold them firm and true into our lives here today. Bless this word. Carry these words to your people. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. We like to measure things, don't we? We like to measure pieces of wood. We like to measure football fields and athletic courts. We like to measure things. We like to measure things also like wealth. We like to measure things like status. We like to measure things like importance. We like to measure things like justice, righteousness. We like to measure things like dignity and value. And we take time to measure these things. We take time, whether it's status or value or importance or wood, We take the heart, the adage that our dads taught us when we were young, right? Measure twice and cut once. Therefore, intentionally or or not, we like to measure just about everything in life. And often we have our own measuring tape, don't we? And the numbers on our measuring tape line up with our agenda. And our measuring tape is unique. And it figures out how we get through life. And we use it a lot. For just about everything. In Mark 7, we find a few stories about measuring. We find that Jesus, however, doesn't measure with a tape or even his own tape. He measures with grace and compassion. If we were to have read the story just prior to the verses that we read this morning, we would see that Jesus was on another a, a hill teaching the people. They, they, were, they were measuring other people, weren't they? they? They were measuring value, dignity, importance, righteousness, justice. 
and they were asking the questions, what does it mean to be defiled? Who, who, who is a defiled person? What does it mean to be broken, marred, sullied? For that's the definition of defilement. What, is it, what does that mean to be unclean, Jesus? And they were asking these questions over and over again. And Jesus says these words to them. Hear me. Come here. Listen, please. This is what defiles a person. And this is what does not defile a person. What defiles a person is not the external forces like ethnicity, color, race, gender. What defiles a person is on the inside. The brokenness of one's soul. Sin is what defiles a person. And so Jesus, who was in the region of Galilee at this time on this hill, speaking to a largely Jewish audience, and that Jewish audience or that audience of the day, the children of God, were looking over the fence, weren't they? Well, that person is defiled. That person is unclean. How do I know, Jesus, that I am better than that person is essentially what they're saying. And Jesus says, it's not what you think it is. It's it's, it's not their ethnicity. It's not their DNA that defiles them. What defiles them is the same thing that defiles you. It's the corruption of sin that causes defilement. Jesus is saying to them, and He's saying to us, you need a different measuring stick. You need a different way of measuring value. A different way of measuring importance, of dignity, of worth. Rather than what you think your measuring stick says. Mark tells us that after he said these things to the children of God in the region of Galilee, he arose and he went away from that hill. And he went away from the the, the place where the people were supposed to get it. He went away from the children of God and, and, and Mark tells us he went to Tyre and Sidon. He went away from them in order to retreat. In order to, in order to retreat to a place where he could be hidden for he just wanted a break. Many scholars said that he, he actually wanted to take his disciples to this place where they wouldn't be recognized, they wouldn't be seen, and he could just sit down with them and he could teach them about the kingdom of God. For remember, this is the, the Gospel of Mark, right? That Mark is trying to emphasize the kingdom of God. What does it look like to live in this new kingdom? Where is God taking us from and where is He taking us to and defining this kingdom of God? And so scholars are saying, if that's the theme of Mark, then Jesus is saying, I'm going to take my disciples away from a place where all we're doing is is being pressed in by these crowds and we're going to go and we're going to go on a a retreat. We're going to go on a weekend retreat, if you will. A guy's retreat to Tyre and Sidon. And we're going to have a time of learning and teaching. But upon arriving in the land of Tyre and Sidon, a place again where he was hoping to not be noticed, someone did notice him. A woman noticed him. And she came and she fell on his feet. And it's interesting that Mark uses exactly the same language for this Syrophoenician woman when she fell at the feet of Jesus as he does when, if you remember, a guy by the name of Jairus and his daughter. When Jairus came to Jesus, the same language was used for him that, G- that he came to Jesus and fell at his feet. For Jairus was a desperate man who was an upstanding citizen, if you remember. He, he was uh, a caretaker of the synagogue. And if anybody should have known to come to Jesus, 
as, as a healer, as one who could save his daughter, as one who would understand Jairus was the one. It made sense that Jairus would come to Jesus. For he, as a man and a caretaker, in a good standing citizen within the community, came to Jesus and fell at his feet. This is what he was supposed to do. It was no surprise that this is what Jairus does. If anyone would have known what to do, he would have known what to do to have Jesus save his daughters. It makes sense that one of the children of God would respond in this way. But here in this story, right now in Mark chapter 7, Mark gives us a completely different picture right now and uses the same language construct to paint and to draw a similar and yet completely different picture. Here Mark tells that Jesus is away from the region of the children of God. So we're not with Jairus and the people, but we're in this land of Tyre and Sidon, and here is this woman who falls at his feet in the same way Jairus falls at his feet, and here was a Gentile. And not only a Gentile, but a Syrophoenician Gentile. And not only a Gentile, a Syrophoenician Gentile, but a woman who was a Gentile and a Syrophoenician Gentile. Why is this important? Mark gives us these details to give us a new measuring stick. How are we measuring value? How are we measuring importance? How are we measuring, does this woman deserve grace and compassion? Does this Gentile, does this person whom the children of God are looking across the fence, does she deserve it? A new measuring stick. This is the same region that we heard of last week when I referenced another story. If you recall, I referenced the story of Elijah and and the prophets of Baal and that there was a queen, a queen by the name of Jezebel that didn't like the outcome of that little encounter and she pursued Elijah, pursued him to kill him and, and Elijah had to run into the wilderness. Do you recall that story? Well, where did that take place? Here in Tyre. You see, the people of Israel, the children of God, knew the history here. They knew that this woman was a descendant, or at least was by ethnicity a member of the house, of the the nation that Queen Jezebel, the conniving queen who corrupted the nation of Israel and the commandments of the Lord. This Syrophoenician woman, this Gentile woman, who is now at the feet of Jesus, was the same people as Jezebel. She's a woman. A woman from this heritage was in their eyes most definitely defiled. Lacking value, lacking dignity, lacking worth, lacking importance. And it is in here in this stark contrast between Jairus, an upstanding citizen guy who was the caretaker of the synagogue, fell at the feet of Jesus in the contrast of a Syrophoenician Gentile woman falling at the feet of Jesus. Both had daughters dying. Both had little girls, Mark tells us. Both were in the same state of desperation. Is there grace and compassion? She was a measured woman. Measured as a Syrophoenician. Measured as a Gentile. 
And then the story gets strange. Stranger. She, with the same desperation as Jairus, asked Jesus, she asked Jesus to remove the darkness from her little girl. The darkness that enveloped her very soul, the, was in darkness enveloped her very soul via the, the presence of a demon. A darkness that veils the sight of her mother and her and consumes the very essence of the girl. A darkness that presses a desperate woman to fall at the knees of Jesus. Then Jesus says something strange. Stranger. He has ventured from the kingdom of the children of God. From the, the, the region of Galilee where, where largely the, the Jewish people lived. And He enters in and He moves into this new region, this Gentile region. And the people of the Lord often referred to these people as dogs. You can find those examples in Exodus and 1 Kings and 2 Kings where Gentiles were often referred to as dogs. It's kind of the common vernacular. It's those dogs over there in Tyre. Those dogs in Sidon. And Jesus goes to the land of the dogs. And in verse 27, Jesus says this strange thing to this woman. Let the children be fed first, for it is not right to take the children's bread and throw it to the dogs. Jesus says, why should I give you anything? You are not a child of God. You are a dog. Jesus calls this woman a dog? I was reading an article this week uh, from a theologian. And uh, the thrust of the article was that Jesus was really not who he says he was because he clearly sinned. And this text is proof. He clearly sinned because he was condescending this woman. He was making fun of her. He was calling her names. You are a dog. Why should I give you grace? This is how I measure you, Syrophoenician woman, Gentile woman. You are nothing more than a dog. It would appear that Jesus has done just that. Even in our day, even in our day, if we were to say a woman to a woman, you are a dog, or some other word, that would not be a very nice thing to say. Clearly, that would not be a very nice thing to say. And so back then or now, calling a lady a dog is not necessarily the best thing to say. So, what do we do with this how, what do, how do we wrestle with this thing that Jesus says to this woman? How do we reconcile a perfect God, a compassionate God, a man, with calling a woman a dog? Here's my stab. We cannot be lazy Bible readers. We have to take the time. We have to take the energy to, to read our Bibles carefully, to understand contexts, to understand, yes, even in some cases, original languages to be able to really get the thrust of what's happening here. We must understand the context better in order to understand what's happening. Again, Jesus has gone from Galilee, from teaching the people about what it means to be defiled. Remember? Just from the story prior. That what does it mean to be defiled? It's not your ethnicity. It's not the fact that you are Syrophoenician that makes you defiled. It's not that you are a woman that makes you defiled. This is the conversation that just took place. And now Jesus enters into this kingdom, this, this region of Tyre and Sidon, and this woman who in the, in the measuring stick of the children of God was by all means defiled. This, this is 
This is the context then, right? And Jesus says to her, let the children be fed first, i.e., let the Jews be fed first. And then the crumbs from the family go to the dogs. So is Jesus calling the dogs dogs? No, not necessarily. He's saying, here's a priority of mission, right? And Paul picks up this uh, in Romans chapter 1. The same kind of thing. Where Paul says in these items, I am ashamed of nothing but the gospel first to the Jew and then to the Gentile. In 1955, Disney released a movie about an upscale lady and an alley tramp. A story about love that crossed boundaries and borders. By all measures, the pampered and precious lady should have never met or fallen in love with the back alley tramp. And yet, as we know, the story of the lady and the tramp, it's a a story of love that isn't measured by borders, and they eat spaghetti together. And in the movie... Even in the title, there are different understanding of the word dogs, even in our context, in our vernacular. One, a tramp, or a dirty, rotten, mangy mutt. Right? The kind of dog that lives in the street. The kind of dog that eats garbage for breakfast, lunch, and dinner and finds the scraps wherever he can find them. This is the tramp in Lady and the Tramp. Right? The other, Lady who was a very pristine and precious and sweet little dog who lived in the lap of luxury and was fed the best of dog foods and of foods that the family could afford. This is the contrast, even in our own vernacular. But we don't have varying words to describe tramp or lady. We don't have specific. The best that we can do is mangy mutt or, oh, you're a precious little puppy. We don't have specific words. However, the Greek, believe it or not, actually does have two different words to describe two different kinds of dogs. So here they go. Chiron refers to a garbage-eating street dweller, a mangy mutt, the tramp. Chimarion refers to a small dog that would be kept in the house as a pet, lady. So which term does Jesus use for the lady? Chiron or Chimerion? Well, of course he uses Chimerion, right? A precious dog, a family dog. But you say, he still called her a dog. Yes, but it was an illustration. An illustration of, frankly, of endearment. Jesus was illustrating the darkness that the world finds itself. That the darkness that fails to see the mission of Jesus to the ends of the earth And again, this is in part where Paul picks this up. For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, for the Jew first and also to the Greek. Jesus was saying to this woman, my grace is first to the children of God, but I've moved out from the region of children of God and moved into your house. And now you have the same grace. And Jesus says this to this woman. And she replies that she understands this priority. She understands this mission. She also understands that she is valued by Jesus. And she's not called a nasty word. 
She understands the grace of Jesus, even a crumb. Even the morsel of Jesus' grace is more valuable than anything that she could possibly imagine. A drop, a crumb, a morsel of the grace of Jesus has the power to restore her daughter, to heal her daughter. And she agrees and she says, yes, even the dogs eat from the family. So this is an interesting thing where now Jesus turns it on its head. And He begins to set the stage of moving from the children of God into the Gentiles and turning the Gentiles back around into the family of God. And there's this beautiful circle that Jesus now goes on with this journey. Even the overflow of grace is all we need. Then Jesus says to this woman for this statement, go your way. The demon has left your daughter. He had, just as he did with Jairus' little girl, saved this woman's little girl, brought her from all intents and purposes from death to life. So what just happened? In the same language construct, Jairus, an upstanding man in the children of God community who fell at the feet of Jesus, had his little girl saved, raised from death to life. And now Jesus, with the same compassion, the same grace, the same mercy, the same measuring stick of value, worth, importance, dignity, honor, says to this Syrophoenician Gentile woman, you and your daughter hold as much value, dignity, worth, and importance to to me as Jairus and his little girl. The little girls were restored. And when the woman returned home, she now saw something in the darkness. In the former darkness, I should say. Her little girl was healed. The demon was gone. You see, grace goes to the dark places, doesn't it? Grace goes to the darkest places. And grace goes to the darkest place even of hell as Jesus was placed in the grave after His crucifixion. He goes to the darkest region imaginable. Not where just one demon lived, but where the hordes of demonic legions and the prince of darkness rules and grace storms the bastions of hell and rips down the walls and defeats the enemy himself. It's this kind of grace that's beyond measure. The kind of grace that goes to a Syrophoenician woman and says, I love you and I love your little girl and she is healed. And Jesus goes to this darkness And now, not only the man, but the woman, the kind of grace is beyond measure. It opens our eyes and allows the light to come in, just as this woman, now seeing her daughter well, saw the full measure of Jesus' grace. It causes her to see that grace extends, just as Jesus said to the people, the children of God, extends beyond borders, extends beyond boundaries, beyond ethnicity, beyond gender, even to her. The gospel of grace is given by the Lord to whom He chooses by His measure, not ours. And it goes beyond anything that we can imagine, even the smallest morsel. It reaches the darkest place of the world. It reaches to the people that we measure as not important. It reaches those that we measure that aren't valued for grace causes us then to see what is valued. It's grace beyond measure to the Jew and to the Gentile. 
for all people. And so Jesus has moved from Galilee into Tyre, and then he moves deeper in to Gentile territory, and he goes into the land of Sidon. These people were the Canaanites of old. The place where once the kings of Judah and Israel ruled and reigned. It was the region of the powerful Phoenician armies that ruled fiercely and with great wealth. It was now, in this story, a province under the Roman Empire. It was another area with great significance in the history of the children of God. But it has once again turned a deaf ear to the Lord. The people of the region hearing that Jesus had come from Tyre and is now in their land brought to him a man who was both deaf and could not talk. The people, like Jairus, who implored him earnestly, who like the Syrophoenician woman begged him, now these people too beg Jesus to heal this man. Why would someone beg? Why would someone implore We beg for selfish reasons oftentimes, don't we? Our children beg for another cookie or another hour on video games. They beg for toys. They beg for clothes. They beg for this thing or the next. But we beg for things too, don't we? We beg for a different job, a better job. We beg for peace. We beg for all kinds of things. We've had also bad connotations for those who beg. For the word beggar is not a term of endearment. Those people who stand on the entry or the exit of the interstate asking for handouts. But we beg for reasons too. When someone truly begs, however, it is often the case that there is real desperation. That all there is left to do is to beg. This is where Jairus was. This is where the Syrophoenician woman was. This is where these people are. All they have left to do is to beg at the feet of Jesus. Heal my little girl. Heal my friend. These people, like those before, were desperate for something, someone, to restore things the way that they're supposed to be. For we're not supposed to be deaf. We're not supposed to not be able to talk. We were created to hear. We were created to speak. And here, this man can neither hear or speak. And Jesus does something again that is unusual, at least for him. And I would say even for us. Again, there's a crowd. And he takes this man who can't hear and he can't speak and he he pulls him out of the crowd and he, he separates him from the crowd and pulls him off privately, pulls him to the side. And Jesus then, by doing that, communicates something, I think, in, in that physical action. He says to that man of all these people, Of all these people that are gathered around, I am coming after you. He's valuing this man, a Gentile man, who by the measuring stick of the people, the children of God, was defiled. He was unclean because he couldn't hear and he couldn't speak. And Jesus takes him to himself out of the crowd. And Jesus does something even more remarkable and even more unusual than just simply taking him away from the crowd. He actually does something that no good Jew, no good children of God would ever do with an unclean Gentile. He actually touched this man. 
You just don't touch unclean things. It's not good for you. It's not healthy. It's not right. But then Jesus does just that. He touches the man with his saliva, and as far as I can, I can tell in the research I did, I don't know why Jesus did that. You, we, we can conject and we can, we can take some measure, but I have found no medical reason or even... The, it's just a detail that Mark gives us. It's fine. It's there. But Jesus touches his ears and touches his tongue. The physical contact is an overt expression of the compassion that Jesus has towards this man. And not only this man, but as the context would say, for all of people, for the Gentiles, for the clean and the unclean. For it is the unclean that Jesus came to restore. Touch then is a tangible expression, isn't it? A tangible testimony of the future reality that the children of God have with a union with Christ. In our union with Christ, we are more than touched. We are indwelled by the Holy Spirit. And we are made one with Jesus Christ. And we cannot be separated. This is the promise that the Holy Spirit gives to us. So in a very small way, when Jesus touches this man, He's giving him value and dignity and worth. The compassion upon this man goes beyond measure. Then with more compassionate and with gracious hands, Jesus places His fingers in the man's ears, and then on the man's tongue. So I don't know what the order is, but he put his fingers in his ears, and then he touched his tongue, and Jesus says to him, be opened. And his ears were opened, and the tongue released. The power of grace pierced the barrier that closed this man's ears. It pierced the barrier that closed this man's ears and released his tongue. And even in the English language, this is a beautiful picture of of what is happening, that the, the ears were open and the tongue was set free. But if we look further into Scripture and we look further into the original language, we see that there's so much more beauty that happens in this little sentence. It really is quite amazing. So let me take you to a prison cell in Acts chapter 16. Do you remember this prison cell in Acts chapter 16? Paul and Silas had been imprisoned and they were in a Roman jail. And as I've said before, that Roman jails were not nice places. You didn't get three square a day. You didn't get HBO. You were lucky if you got fed at all. Jails are miserable, terrible things in our day. But in this day, they were something altogether different. And Paul and Silas were chained to a wall under the guard of a Roman legion. And in that prison, suddenly there was a great earthquake, so that the foundations of the prison were shaken, and immediately all the doors were opened, and everyone's bonds were, unsh- were unfastened. The same wording in Acts is used to describe the doors being opened as the ears of the man being opened. The same words that, is, that they were loosened from their chains is the same construct that Mark uses to say the man's tongue was unloosened. His chain, the chain that held his tongue was broken free. The walls that barred his ears were shattered and dropped and they were opened. The miracle in Acts chapter 16 of a, of a prison cell being shattered open is now the same miracle that's done for this man and his ears being open and his tongue being unchained. This man 
in every sense of the way as Paul and Silas had been set free. He had been set free by the piercing hands of Jesus and into his most desperate need, the need to hear and the need to speak. And this too is our most desperate need. For we need to hear over and over again how the pierced hands of Jesus on the cross not only opened up our ears, but opened up the very throne room of heaven. For on that day when Jesus was pierced, the curtain was torn in two, and the throne room of heaven was opened for all. Man, woman, Jew, Gentile, Greek, American, African, Mexican, all now have access to the throne room of God. On that day when the nails pierced through our Savior's hands, it was indeed a moment of opening where we see grace, grace beyond measure. But now, can we not only see through the darkness, and now through grace, not only do we hear it, but we also experience it. And this is what the people gathered around had the opportunity to do. To experience the grace is to be astonished by its measure. For you see, wasn't this the response of the people as they saw this miracle? Did it say, what does it say they did? Well, that's great. That's really cool. No, it says they were astonished. Astonished by what Jesus has just done. The people saw the restorative power of grace and they were astonished. But were they just astonished simply at the fact that Jesus opened up this man's ears and unloosed the chain on this man's tongue? Yes, of course, that's where they were astonished. But there's more to the story than just simply observing a miracle. The truly astonishing thing that happened here, this thing about grace, the astonishing thing about grace is that grace is given at all. Especially to these people in this region. And Jesus says, it doesn't matter. I'm going to give grace to this man and to these people. The astonishing thing that these people, by the measuring stick for most people, they were unclean. They were not the children of God. But here Jesus touches them and heals them. And they've been given faith. Or in other words, they were made children of God. They were no longer foreigners. They were no longer aliens. So Jesus went from the region of the children of God into a Gentile region. Gave amazing grace. Grace beyond measure. And makes the, Jew, the Gentile, the man, the woman, who were once unclean, and turns them and makes them children of God. There are no borders. There are no boundaries to a grace beyond measure. And all they could do was worship. In other words, they experienced grace beyond measure. And they were astonished. Because they saw and they heard that Jesus has done all things well. John 19, verse 28. After this, Jesus, knowing that all was now finished, said to fulfill the Scripture, I thirst. A jar full of sour wine stood there So they put a sponge full of the sour wine on a hyssop branch and held it to his mouth. When Jesus had received the sour wine, he said, it is finished. Jesus does all things well. 
He opens our eyes to see this grace. Even in the darkness. He opens our ears to hear of this grace. Even when we can't hear. He opens our eyes to see that it's not race, gender, color, that are the children of God. He opens our ears to hear of this kind of grace that is beyond measure. And why does He do that? So that we would experience grace beyond measure. That we too would be astonished by this kind of grace. He opens our eyes. He opens our ears. And He opens our mouths to sing of this kind of grace. Because grace is beyond measure. Let's pray. Dear Jesus, we give you thanks for your grace. We give you thanks that you've called us to be your children. Lord, continue to open our eyes. Hold them open that we might see of your unmeasured grace. Open our ears that we might hear day after day, week after week, of your grace. And Lord, we pray that you would allow us to experience grace and that we would be astonished. That we would be astonished not only by the grace you give to us, but by the grace you give to other people and that we would worship and that we would celebrate. We pray this in the strong name of Jesus. Amen.